The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. I'd like to finish chapter 14 of Luke as we've been considering this gospel. And we read a paragraph now that in my Bible, of course, these titles are not inspired, but the title given this paragraph is The Cost of Discipleship. And I think that's a very accurate title. Listen as I read from God's own word to us. Now great crowds accompanied Jesus, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, does not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, While the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, if anyone of you does not renounce all that he has, cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is God's voice to us by his word. You certainly know that Americans love a bargain. This time of year, perhaps more so than other times of year, we're all on the hunt. Where can I get another 10% off? Who's having a bigger sale? I know people whose supreme concern in life, not just at Christmas, but throughout the year, seems to be knowing whether or not they paid the rock-bottom price for anything they buy, whether it's a box of paper clips or a luxury car. I have been regaled by people at great length and in great detail of how they conducted a deal on a car or something and got the greatest deal. Well, it's a good thing to be thrifty, of course. Nobody would argue with that. But it's not so great a thing if you carry a total consumer mentality into your Christian faith. Because that could have you asking all the time what the price tag is of walking with Christ. And you might begin saying, well, what is the doctrinal minimum that I have to believe to be right with God? Or... 
when it comes to habits or practices, you know, do I really have to give that up? Is that something that I can afford to have in my life and still call myself a Christian? And people begin to analyze being a disciple as if they would try to get it or obtain it in the cheapest way possible. Words of Jesus, not only here but other places, on this whole subject, what we call the cost of discipleship, form some of the more radical things he ever had to say. I would think that in our text, if you read it carefully, verse 33 would would seem to leap off the page as a summary. Any of you who does not give up or renounce everything he has, everything he has, cannot be my disciple. That certainly needs some interpretation. But any way we say it, we be very careful that we don't water it down. Here we have the scene of great crowds still accompanying Jesus. He could have taken the approach of a politician and said, I want as many of you with me as possible under any circumstances, so I promise you anything and I make the way easy. But he didn't do that, did he? He said hard things. He kept saying hard things. And many of those hard things certainly caused people to turn away. And here we look at the first thing that he says in calling people under a stark realism, not under faith at a discount. Our first consideration is Luke 14, 26, where Jesus demands from disciples a love for himself so supreme that it makes all regular affections seem like hate. By comparison, what strange words. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children, he cannot be my disciple. Now, obviously, these words are, are chosen to have shock value. Hate seems like a very rude word to apply to members of our family. And in order to correctly interpret Scripture, we've got to remember this is the same Jesus who would have advocated honoring father and mother. He's speaking within the same word of God that talks about husbands laying down their lives for their wives and wives deeply respecting their husbands and parents respecting and cherishing their children. Could this then be some novel teaching that says suddenly families are abolished and we're supposed to despise them? Obviously it doesn't say that. But the word hate is still there. And it's there in a relative way rather than an absolute way of application. We know Jesus meant compared to the great and genuine and self-sacrificing and precious love that you would show for your children, for precious twins like we had before us today, or a husband or a wife, compared to how you love them. That will seem almost like hate when compared to the way in which you ought to love me. I must be supreme. I must be first. Even before your love for a wife or a husband or a parent or a child. You know, think of this image maybe. I might be quite impressed by the eight-foot 
Fraser fir Christmas tree all decorated in our living room. Took a bit of wrestling to get it in there. The tree almost won, actually. But it's up, it's lighted, it's decorated, it's beautiful. You might think your tree's the most beautiful, but we would say our tree's the most beautiful. Seems grand. We love it when these things are in our house this time of year. But if I was going to somehow exalt my tree and say it wins the prize for greatest tree of all, most beautiful tree of all, all I would have to do would be to look on the TV at the White House Christmas tree or trees. I think they have many of them all through the White House. Or, or look at the television broadcasts of Rockefeller Center with that enormous, what is it, 40 or 50 foot high tree glittering and shining. And I would say, well, gee, my tree I thought looked good, but it's pretty poor by comparison. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Your love for a wife, for a father, a mother, a child should indeed be a shining thing. There is, of course, the legitimate loves of your life that bind you to your family. He is not canceling that. But he's saying that alongside those, he is to be your ultimate loyalty and affection and tie of obedience. In other words, we owe him more than we owe parents or wives or husbands or children. Now, that makes a point in a pretty strong way. Of course, every Christian should love his family. And yet he's also here, I think, reminding us that subtle or sometimes not so subtle, even direct opposition for Christian faith can come to us from our families. Families aren't always the perfect environment for the growth of Christian faith. There can be times when when parents or siblings or children are in opposition and we have battles going on over acknowledging Christ. I've had many, many cases over the years of knowing people who newly come to Christ and profess faith and they, they're ready to go back and tell their families the gospel and they do so very excitedly only to be met with stony or even fierce opposition. What do you mean you became a Christian? You think we're not Christians? Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. And Jesus had predicted in Matthew 10, 34, that the sword of division would come into families because of real faith. That elsewhere, he said that a man's enemies would be the members of his own household. Now, that isn't universally true. It doesn't have to be true. But it often is true. And authentic disciples will see their family ties affected one way or the other because sooner or later, some question of ultimate loyalty comes up. Is your ultimate loyalty with Christ or is it the call of your wife or your husband who does not know the Lord? And that's a hard thing to face and define and live with. But if necessary... We must be prepared in a manner of speaking to offend, and I would say offend as gently as we are able to, but if necessary, offend someone near and dear to us before we would knowingly disobey, disavow, or refuse him who died for us and who gives us eternal life. He has our first loyalty. Now, moving on from that, secondly, 
And a much longer point for my second point is what we see in verses 28 to 33, which could be summarized perhaps under carrying a disciple's cross, picking up and bearing those things that are required of us to be a disciple of Jesus. I read the testimony of a missionary doctor who once was lamenting the way in which his denomination or mission uh, evangelized people in the particular African country where he was. And he was concerned that the, the desire was to reach numbers, as many as possible, but perhaps not to give those people the full gospel. Here's what he said. He said, we want so much to win people to Christ, we water down the gospel until believing in Jesus asks almost nothing of them. And so there's no true repentance before they become disciples and afterward no living apart from worldly standards. He said we make it too easy to be Christ's disciple. Well, that seems to be what Jesus was saying in this stunning verse 33 here. Unless a man gives up everything he has, he cannot be my disciple. Now, you could read that with crude literalism and say then, St. Francis of Assisi had it right, a man with a, a moderate fortune who in ages past said the only way to follow Christ is to give away every dollar, which he did, and to wear coarse cloth and sandals and go out into the world and preach and teach and do everything he could do to be Jesus' disciple with no possessions. Is that what's being said here? If it was, it certainly would announce a strange kind of economics for us to support our families and to be responsible people in this world. So maybe we have to come back to this verb, to give up, which means renouncing, cutting ties of ultimate belonging, renouncing ideas, goals, influences, friendships, occupations, entertainments, things that would desire to or tend to hold first place in our lives if we allow them to. When remember, we've already been told that first place has to belong to Christ alone. I want to pause here to clarify because if we're not careful, we can be exalting the law today in a wrong way. Our salvation is founded on God's wonderful, free grace in the cross of Christ. Redemption is not by works. It's not through acts of self-denial. It's not by giving your money away. It's not by working harder than anybody else as a volunteer through the church. Heaven is not a reward for taking vows of poverty or anything else. We cannot pay for the grace of God. Don't try. You'll be involved in the most foolish of all possible endeavors. However, there's no contradiction, you see, between saying, by grace are you saved through faith, and this passage, which is speaking not about the way of salvation, but what to do as a disciple, someone who already has responded to God's free grace, God's free offer. And you see, there's a little bit of a paradox here. Salvation is free. Discipleship isn't. We have no payment to make to enter the kingdom of God. 
But you see, here's that balance of grace and law that we always have to remember in the Bible. Salvation is free. But a response to walk with Christ in an ongoing way of obedience and putting him first and putting other things very deliberately, second, third, fourth, or tenth, will extract from us a price. We come into the kingdom of heaven by grace. We walk in that kingdom in willing obedience to the law of God. Now, what does this look like in practical terms? I'm going to suggest several things here, a handful of things. One, certainly, is something you might say we pay in lifetime installments. It's called repentance. There are some people that think, well, you repent when you first take Christ as Savior. Lord, I'm sorry for all my sins. Forgive me for Jesus' sake. Of course you do that. But guess what? You need to do that every day. And you need to do that not just in some broadcast, generalized way, I'm sorry that I'm a sinner, You need to say, Lord, I recognize the sin of anger in the way I treated William the other day or the way in which I responded in anger to this person or or whatever. I need to name my sins, own up to them, hold them before you and say, Lord, here again I've failed you. Here again, forgive me. Not that you need salvation reapplied every single day, but the work of salvation is a work in a sense, that involves installments of repentance, extracting, pulling out, and even throwing into a bonfire those deeds and thoughts and ways of our lives that we know are displeasing to God. Another cost of being a disciple, I'll tell you this, will come in some way in terms of losing the world's good opinion of you. Now, this doesn't mean you have to become like a first-century martyr, hunted down to be arrested and killed. There are lesser forms of persecution, and Christians do experience them. Sometimes it's just the mild scorn of other people, the lack of acceptance in people's worldly ways of doing things and thinking. This is a real contest for young people because they want to be accepted. We all do. We all want to be popular. We want to be well thought of. We even want to be praised. Well, there are ways in which in following Christ you are not going to be praised by all your friends. You're going to be misunderstood at least. You may even be mocked. You may even be irrationally hated. That wouldn't be anything new for a Christian. You may be thought a fool or a fanatic. Well, be a fool for Christ. But be ready to know that that is a price that Christian discipleship still asks in the 21st century. Another way to pay this price is just by following the daily disciplines that are required to seek after godliness, to immerse your life in the word of God and in prayer. You certainly won't find hours every day, most of you, to commit to these things. Many of you know that even to find small amounts of time to genuinely pray in a serious way, whether it's morning or evening or lunch hour, whatever, wherever that time comes, even on your daily drive, I often, you know, I've had businessmen tell me, how do you expect me to find any time for prayer? I say, tell me where your work is and tell me where your house is and how many minutes separation is there. Keep the radio off. Pray as you drive. That's time you've got in a steel closet with God. 
and you can use it. It takes some discipline. It takes some organization, just as if you were going to run a marathon or compete in an athletic event. The study of the Word of God, a life of prayer, these aren't things that just happen naturally for any of us, pastors included. You have to fight for that time because it's worth it to have the Word of God and communication with God be part of your life. Well, then you won't be surprised that I would say another cost of discipleship And it it was one that certainly is suggested when Jesus says, renounce all that you have, are possessions and your dollars. Sure, that's part of it. You can't completely divorce Christian discipleship from stewardship. One is hand in hand often with the other, not as the sole response to God, but one response. You can't divorce the idea of being God's steward. You can't divorce the principles he's given, such as the tithe principle of the 10% gift as not the maximum, but the minimum idea of what a disciple would offer to the Lord. Now, no matter how many times any pastor would raise this, I know, believe me, I know, I can see inside your brain. And I know there are those of you who say, okay, go ahead, I'll just block out this little stewardship sermon that you're sneaking in here because it's the end of the year. No, I know that there are people who are not experiencing the blessing of God because every time that subject comes up, they resist. And they say, oh, that pastor and his tithing stuff. Do you really mean to tell me God wants 10% of my money? Well, don't you see the problem in what I just said? You think it's your money. And it isn't. It never has been. And it never will be. The approach of a Christian steward is to say, rather, what an unbelievable thing. God has given me the ability to work, the ability to be productive in this world. And he says, go and live on 90% of all you make and then offer to me a thank offering that will show your, your dependence and your praise to me. What a wonderful, generous God he is. You see, that's a disciple's response. And it's quite a different perspective, isn't it? Well, there's another price the biblical disciples pay, and that is the surrender of our proud self-determination in many, many areas, our plans. Oh, Lord, I've got my life all mapped out. I've got it all mapped out. I know just how it should go, and therefore, if you will cooperate with me and bring the right opportunities and the right jobs and the right spouse and the right this and that and the other thing to me, my life will go just as I've planned it. Guess what? It just about never does. He calls for disciples to be surrendered to him. He says, you are not your own. You don't belong to yourself. You were bought with a price, the precious blood of Christ, and self has to be sacrificed as Lord and master of your present circumstances and your future if Christ is your Lord. And it means humbling yourself. And believe me, if you're not ready to humble yourself, don't worry, he'll take care of that. He'll find ways to humble you. And show you that your life belongs to him and to others, not just yourself. Well, Jesus gave two examples here of what he called counting the cost under this business of carrying your cross. And interesting practical examples in verses 28 to 32, uh, they're very similar. One in building a tower, the other one fighting a battle. What's in common? You have to think ahead. Can I do this? Do I have what's required 
I remember building our house so well eight or nine years ago. You really had to sit down and do your math and then know that you better tack on another 10% because everything's going to cost more than you think. Do you really want to end up with a hollow shell of a house that you're not able to finish inside or, or landscape or do the things that are required to finish it? You've got to think ahead. Same with a battle. If you have an army, you better know what your opponent's army is. You better know who has more weapons and more men. And, and if he's got three times as many, you're in trouble. You better sue for peace or you could be killed. Well, it would seem like the lesson there is saying, be prepared in your own strength and sufficiency. In just a minute, I'll tell you that I don't think that's the lesson. But first here, Bishop J.C. Ryle from the 19th century who said this, quote, it is entirely possible for a nominal practice of our Christian religion to cost you neither trouble, effort, time, nor thought, nor pains, nor coin, nor praying, nor reading, nor study, nor inward conflict. It's entirely possible to be a nominal Christian and not pay a price in any of those areas, Ryle said. But, he said, a religion which costs you nothing is worth nothing. And he was absolutely right. You see, Jesus isn't saying, make sure you can do it. Make sure you have the wherewithal to be my disciple. Actually, that's a paradoxical statement because we could easily sit down and say, okay, Jesus, I've decided to be a disciple and I feel sure that I have what it takes to run the race and make the sacrifices and be your disciple. And guess what? You would have missed everything this text is trying to say. When Jesus said count the cost, what he wanted you to discover was, I can't do it. I don't have in me what it requires to make these kinds of sacrifices. I am not self-sufficient to this thing. You see, only when you are awed by the difficulty of being the disciple of Christ and you throw up your hands and say, I cannot do this, Lord, if it's going to happen, you're going to have to work in me, sustain me, hold me up every day, and give me the strength to make the decisions and the sacrifices step by step. Guess what? That's exactly where he wants to have you when you would recognize that. It's that conscious helplessness that gives birth to real discipleship. Paul said it in 2 Corinthians 2, who is sufficient for these things, he was saying, being a disciple, being an apostle. And he said, it is not that we are sufficient in ourselves at all. Our competency comes from God. Counting the cost leads to a real dependence on your Lord. And then this concluding word. It seems like verses 34 and 35 are one of those little tacked-on things. I, I think we look at the Gospels sometimes and think, oh, they're just kind of a little patchwork quilt, not really related, don't know why that's there. I would argue with you that 34 and 35 are there. They belong exactly to what has just been said. If salt has lost its savor, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's good only to be thrown away. Let me colloquialize it and say, are you worth your salt? Sodium chloride can be polluted by dirt, impurities. It can be exposed to water and chemically transformed so that its usefulness is basically ruined. 
You won't use it to flavor food or preserve food or do the things that it was meant to do. It might as well not be salt anymore at all. And that's what Jesus is saying. Disciples who haven't counted the cost and who haven't come to that point of saying, I can't do this except by the supernatural power of God and his spirit working in me, Jesus isn't on the throne for them. They haven't decided who their first loyalty is to. Their loyalty will go to anybody who comes along and claims it. And they're not worth their salt. They're not worth their salt as far as Christian discipleship is concerned. And so we come to the concluding word, this summary, whoever does not renounce, disown, set aside all that he has, every loyalty claiming him except Christ, cannot be my disciple. We're pretty sure there's got to be some way out of this. There's got to be some free or cheap alternative. I love the, I don't actually go there very often, but I love the concept of Ollie's store. You all know Ollie's, right? Funny looking guy on the sign out in front. and His slogan, good stuff, cheap. I really believe there are people who think the Christian life can be found at Ollie's. That Christian discipleship can be found cheap. Jesus says it can't. He had to pay the great immeasurable price to come to this earth to be one with us and then to go to a cross and die. He doesn't charge us to receive that great salvation that he authored, but once we have it, he asks us for repentance, prayer, self-sacrifice, worship, the building of character, battles against temptation, faithfulness, perseverance, service. Every one of those things costs. Real Christianity costs a giving up of sins, a realigning of loyalties, the spending of time, the spending of your dollars. But if Christ is God, don't we owe him uncompromised self-surrender? The hymn writer said it, love, the love of the cross, so amazing, so divine. What does it demand? A little bit, the least I can pay? It demands my soul, my life, my all. As we pray daily for God's grace to persevere as disciples, be assured of this. No matter what your momentary, temporary difficulty may be in following Christ, in the eternal perspective, the price is right. Let's pray together. Father, this time of year, as we spend and spend, some of it foolishly, some of it with little result, may we reevaluate what we spend to be your disciples. You spent it all. You could not have paid more to make it free to us to enter your kingdom. Lord, may we be willing to respond to you as disciples who persevere in paying whatever price you ask of us. May you be glorified in us, for Jesus' sake. Amen.